This is Candlelands Media. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Folk Horror Podcast from Candlelands Media. I'm your host, Neil, and I'll be joined by Mike in a minute to finish our discussion of Robin Redbreast. Now, he's not in the studio today. At least I don't think he is. I haven't really looked under the table. But I've noticed from listening back to these podcasts that I have a tendency to jump right into feedback and events. So in order to not do that this time, I am adding the sentence right now to add a little buffer. In feedback, uh, my brother Carl had a few things to say about Robin Redbreast so far. I'm hoping to maybe get Carl to give us a regular audio portion of the podcast since he's so full of information. Carl's Corner, we could call it. But for now, I'll just read some of his comments. For his complete comments, go to the Boojum Pudding blog. It's all on there. But I will summarize to some degree and include some of what he said. He says, regarding something Mike said, that it's a very old custom to tell ghost stories in England and in the USA on Christmas. And with Christmas, he says, we're again dealing with a liminal date. In many places, the winter solstice is considered the first day of winter. So a liminal day like this, as the border between autumn and winter, would be a day when other borders become faint, such as the border between the living and the dead, hence the ghost stories. And he says that as early as 1611, William Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale, contains the line, A sad tale's best for winter, I have one of sprites and goblins. In other areas, the cold weather starts a little earlier, so the winter solstice is considered midwinter, and the first day of winter gets pushed back to what we now call Halloween, again considered a fit day for ghost stories. Though Halloween also was for a while sort of more of a romantic holiday as well. Carl also talks about whether Mr. Fisher is really supposed to be the Fisher King. And Carl knows a lot about Arthurian legends, so he's a good good person to ask about this. Carl says he certainly seems to be in charge of everything, hence a king. And in the stories, the Fisher King, as Mike mentioned, is the keeper of the grail. But also he is seriously wounded and can't walk or ride a horse, which is why he spends his time sitting in a boat fishing. Mr. Fisher's cane may be a vague allusion to this, but the Fisher King's wound has also made him sexually impotent, and his kingdom becomes a wasteland. Many commentators say that the fertility of the king is connected to the fertility of the kingdom. So when the king becomes infertile, he should be sacrificed, and a new young virile man made the new king. Only in turn to eventually become elderly and have to be sacrificed to make way for the next new king. Anyway, that would be the sort of interpretation that followers of The Golden Bough by Fraser would support, though most uh, modern anthropologists no longer consider The Golden Bough to be good anthropology. Well, we do discuss The Golden Bough quite a bit in this episode, as you'll see, but um, it's definitely worth looking at as something which influenced a lot of literary figures, including like H.P. Lovecraft, for example. Uh, the Golden Bough approach to the Fisher King myth was followed by Jessie Weston in her book about the Grail, From Ritual to Romance, and both The Golden Bough and From Ritual to Romance were major influences on T.S. Eliot's famous poem, The Wasteland. And it seems to Carl, any or all of these works would have been known to John Bowen. 
And as Carl was thinking about it, there's a story about the Fisher King that appears in Thomas Mallory's Mort to Arthur and also in Once The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Again, either of these could be books known to John Bowen. White portrays the Fisher King as an eccentric occultist, rather like Mr. Fisher. One of the things the Fisher King does, which the help with the help of a magic potion, is get Sir Lancelot to have sex with the Fisher King's daughter, impregnating her with the future Sir Galahad. This seems to me to parallel the way Mr. Fisher manipulates Rob into impregnating Nora. Carl also says regarding Rob's obsession with the SS, it doesn't strike him as that odd because um, the British as a whole seem quite obsessed by World War II. I think Mike, Mike and I thought, though, at least it's supposed to be seen as very odd in the story, in the context. He does. Uh, Carl points out that you didn't really find the young people wearing swastikas in Britain in 1970 when this is first broadcast, which is true. I kind of had lumped the 70s together. Uh, the Tomorrow People episode I had mentioned was from 1978. Um, an album like Nevermind the Bollocks didn't come out until 1977. I have a, a strong memory of uh, being in London with my brother and my family and seeing some punks doing some sort of um, guerrilla theater, and it really freaked me out. I was really afraid the punks were going to come and get me. So I have a bad connotation with the 70s and, and uh, punks. He also talks about my surprise that uh, Rob connected the SS with King Arthur's Round Table, and Carl says he has to act a bit like Rob and go into a discussion of the SS, but this is pretty interesting. The SS, as you probably know or may know, was an inter inner group of the Nazi party that contained the most fanatical Nazis led by Himmler. And while Hitler's uh, religious beliefs are open to dispute, it was clear that Himmler believed the Christian religion was incompatible with Nazi ideology. So Himmler wanted to use the SS to sort of destroy Christianity, and he was interested in the occult, wanted to replace Christianity with a racist Nazi version of neo-paganism. And Himmler, like Hitler and other Nazis, was a big fan of uh, Richard Wagner, some of which were on Arthurian or Holy Grail themes like Parsifal, Tristan und Isolde, and Lohengrin. Himmler incorporated this material into his new SS cult, and he acquired a castle in the village of Wevelsburg, which he started converting into the focus of the cult. The new decorations included Nazi, neo-pagan, and Arthurian elements. We don't know everything about what strange rituals were performed there or what Himmler's long-term plans were, but when the Allies finally took the castle, they did find a round table modeled on King Arthur's table with seats for the leaders of the 12 departments of the SS. So thank you, Carl. Very interesting stuff. And let me move on to event news. The Folk Horror Revival Witch Cult event is rapidly approaching on July 14th in Newcastle, so you should buy your tickets now. I got to talk to organizer Darren Charles about it, and it sounds fascinating. I'm going to put together a whole show um, with my talk in it, and I'm going to hopefully add some music clips and that sort of thing in it too, so that even if you're in America and maybe won't be able to go to this event, you'll be able to check out some of the musicians who are going to be there. The other big Folk Horror Revival news is that the two-volume Harvest Hymns publication is available at lulu.com. This is all about folk horror music. Some great bands and musicians are talked about in there. Interviews with fascinating people. Contributors like Johnny Trunk and um, Adam Scoville. And my article on the film and television influences on the band broadcast is in there and we'll have more information soon. Hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to Jim Peters about everything you'll find in it. I would also like to mention there's a variety of items in the Candlelands Media Folk Horror Store including Region 2 DVDs of both Robin Redbreast and Redshift which we'll be discussing in a few weeks. So stop by through the Boojum Pudding blog or squareup.com slash store slash candle ends media all one word no hyphens 
And now it's on to our conversation, though. I will say one thing Mike mentioned to me that I didn't quite find a place to put in was that John Bowen had written a book in 1964 called The Birdcage, which features Nora Palmer. And here's the synopsis from Goodreads. In John Bowen's The Birdcage, Peter Ash and Nora Palmer have been living together for nine years. Having never seen the point in getting married, they are the epitome of a modern, successful, career-oriented couple. Peter is the compare for a series of art films, and Nora is the script editor for the drama department of a commercial television company. Why then, when holidaying in Venice, does Peter decide to break up their long-lasting relationship? What happens to their order and sense of self when he succeeds? So you can see that's basically a, a, a preamble to Robin Redbreast. Anyway, I got the dog barking in the background, so let's get on with the discussion of Robin Redbreast. immediately go to the next day where she's cracking open an egg noticeably there's a lot of egg yeah. Im- log- egg Im- imagery again yeah just like the wicker man just like the worker man mrs vigo's there and she's she wants her to come to church and even though she's like i'm agnostic oh uh, did you did you remember miss mrs vigo's response to her when she says that no what did she say she goes are you you're jewish of course nora has to clarify no no agnostic is different i'm, I'm not jewish <laughs> Right. Is this where she brings the hat for? Yes, you have to have a decor. Well and... de- you have to have a decoration. You have to have a decoration if you're going. And she says right. that they celebrate right. Easter and they celebrate the harvest, but they don't really celebrate Christmas, which is kind of yeah. That interesting. that was cool. I mean, and harvest and Easter are very closely connected, of course. And in this film, I think even more than the Wicker Man. Well, in the Wicker Man, it's more of a contrast uh, between Christianity and pagan religion. But here, there's like a almost a synthesis of the two in right. how this village is doing it, right? To some degree, they they go along with church when it kind of when it combines with their their religion. But that makes sense. Well, they if... impose their religion on the church, right? I mean, right. they basically you're right, you're right. Yeah. yeah, they basically pull in all of the the animal sacrifice, the gourds, the fruit, the and... you know all of that stuff into literally into the church. So maybe this is one area where it might be nice to go shot by shot through it. Okay. So we get the shot of an open of a churchyard or an exterior of a, of a large old stone church, and then the camera zooms towards the large. I think I don't know if it's a rose window, but it's the front window of the church, and and we hear the bells chiming, and we hear on the soundtrack we hear the priest, and he's uh, or the parson or or what have you. He's he's talking about the grace of the Lord. He's talking about also the bounty of the spring harvest. So he's connecting the two, and the camera goes into the church. As the priest is is going on, and we do get this montage of of various items placed in honor of the harvest festival, and so we get fruit, vegetables, eggs, as you said, um, and then we switch to close-ups of dead animals that are very eerie, like the rabbit and the chicken, and they're kind of placed on an altar, so there's kind of a sense of a sacrifice there. And, I, and I, well, I, I said in in the in the um. The voiceover, the minister says something about holding our precious seeds, I noticed. So I wondered if that was like something that was incorporated into his his speech by by Fisher or something, you know. It was yeah, I think so. I mean, because Fisher mentions just in the scene after this that, you know, basically he's got he's got only scorn for this this parson. He's 
he's basically quote, he says, well, you know, you put up with what you can afford and basically we can afford this guy. He talks about him reading just sermons out of a book, right? Yeah. Holy thoughts for a holy year. I like that. But I, but I wanted to just say that because this is this, the film is very non-naturalistic. And yeah. I mean, I think that the director is even known for that. James McTaggart was, like I mentioned earlier, was not was known for kind of wanting to <clears throat> break the tradition of naturalism in British dramas, then, you know, it would be fine to just expect to see stock footage, montage, still still photos in the middle of this film, as long as they have some kind of thematic purpose for being there. And I definitely think like the very art of montage, you know, where we in that scene where we saw this, the stills of the eggs, the vegetables and the dead animals, it actually like the, the way montage was designed and created by Eisenstein in Russia was to was to actually get audiences used to thinking in non-linear and non-naturalistic terms and to make and to make interesting associations between images and ideas. I and see. yeah, so it fits perfectly. I mean, that though that the series of shots, including a very kind of haunting image of an empty church combined with hearing the voice of the priest who's talking about the seed and he's talking about, you know, um, you know, the harvest and the seed and then the images of the eggs and the vegetables and the dead animals that are required for a sacrifice for the harvest made makes perfect sense in the context of the film. This film is not meant to be an accurate, like documentary style portrait of a village. Right. <laughs> and, right. and, we do get one of those, one of the extras on the disc, the BFI disc, is a short film called Around the Village Green, which oh. is literally, yeah, and I watched it. It's 11 minutes. It's really interesting. It's from 1937, and it's basically a very short documentary about a typical, the typical social and economic life of a village, and it's got a score by Benjamin Britten, too. Oh, original cool. Score. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth checking out. Well, let's see. So she comes back from, quote-unquote, church, and... Fisher and Peter are at her house. He mentions that a burglar must have been up on her roof. Right. Pick, Peter's that. fixing the drain pipe, um, and she's kind of curious. Like she's like, "Why did you guys skip out of church? You know why?" And they have some excuse about it. And then I wrote that they mentioned nightingales again. Since they talked about nightingales, the the night that um, she had the bird in the chimney, I wonder if it was a nightingale that was in her. Yeah, her maybe. Right. Yeah. Although it seems like a very non-threatening bird. Why would you scream like that? It right. Just seems, right. You know, it just seems strange. She's that seems like a very stereotypical weak woman character thing to do. So right. I don't and know. And then fall into the yeah. arms of the. Yeah, they yeah. kind of mock it. But that's exactly what happened is that she fell she did. into the arms. Yeah. Yeah. True. So, so the fact that the fact that he mentions that you've had a burglar on your roof. You know, like basically they're just putting it all out in front of her. Like they're not trying to hide that somebody was on her roof at all. Yeah. And didn't they say was anything missing? Exactly. And yeah. that cuts back to um, the uh, contraceptive is back. Right. Doesn't it yeah. cut to that scene afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I wondered about. Yeah, they should actually show it, which I wondered if that was a, an issue. I think too, that was know? it. I think that was both the mention and the showing of it must yeah. have been just crazy. I mean, that was the thing that got them. Right. It's crazy. I mean, we have in the next scene, she's talking to her friends, and this is when you start thinking about how much you're supposed to like her, because she says, something boring has happened. I appear to be pregnant. Well, yeah, there's a shock cut. I mean, I don't know if it's a shock cut, but it's a cut from the contraceptive being returned to her saying that I'm pregnant. Yeah, and boring, I think she does say that. Um, that might and... just be an English English way of... 
yeah, kind of yeah. underplaying it. It just, right. to my modern ears, sounds really like, oh man, like that's boring, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. I think it's I think it's typical British understatement. Yeah, like oh, I'm sorry, but I'm so boring, but I'm pregnant. She's, she's clearly not happy about it. I mean, it's you know the the one thing she worried about, which is why she has her contraceptives, and she kind of recounts what's happened a little bit to them and there's some of her fear and and it gets interpreted i think as paranoia by jake and madge and you know at one point she talks about how a poacher knocked her knocked rob on the head and jake's like yes yes of course that happens like, right you know, yeah 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 they don't believe it but, crazy, but that's also because they're kind of fake they're kind of fake friends they don't you know yeah, really trust her and, no. yeah yeah they don't want they don't approve of what she's doing there so and then she Almost immediately, she leaves the village. And do they actually say that she's going to get an abortion, or do they just kind of suggest? I think abortion is mentioned, and abortion is mentioned at this point. Yeah, they do say it because she says she. They talk about it, and and I think Madge even says, "Well, I know someone," and she's like, "Oh, don't worry, I I know, I have, I have a connection or something." Okay. Uh, Yeah. And interestingly enough, it's Christmas Day when she's debating this abortion. Okay. Yeah, they mention it's Christmas because Rob shows up at her her apartment, like a hotel room or something that she's staying in. And yeah, he, and he basically shows up pleading with her not to kill his son. Yeah, like literally she opens the door and he's like, you mustn't, you mustn't, don't kill my son. So how does he even know that she's got, you know, pregnant with his son? Yeah. It must have been just this village conspiracy thing again. Right, right. And she's like, it's my seed. And she says, seed is just seed. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm sure that this whole topic at the time was a real hot button topic to be discussing, you know, abortion. And, sure, um, but she doesn't do it. She doesn't get the abortion. No, and she still has the marble, which is interesting. She brought it with it's, her. Well, uh, she didn't. I think somebody put it in her suitcase. Yeah, I think she even says something about how she didn't know how it got there. Oh, um, and he just kind of rubs it in. He gives her a teddy bear, which is really kind of desperate, you know. That was really grotesque <laughs> yeah and she's kind of just uh, and she says i do i don't want if i when i come back i don't want to see you at all so then again she's talking to mrs vigo and she makes a joke about being a fallen woman yeah right. um and vigo mrs vigo says specifically you sh- you do what you want but you got to stay in the cottage until easter which is two weeks from now yeah and yeah. and here's a, a something she says and she kind of talks with this i guess it's a west country accent she says here am your place and what that reminded me of and with rob's place and with mrs vigo's place and the guy who cuts the wood that again like wicker man they all have their their positions of what they ha- are supposed to be doing in the in the ritual yeah and there's a sense of inevitability about the roles that each of them will play i mean up until now, Nora has ignored most of the signs and not really acted to flee or escape. I mean, she's really just she's, she's had opportunities, uh, but she's being manipulated. And she kind of it, there's also the kind of under sense that maybe she's allowing herself to be manipulated. I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. again, I, I was thinking about the when she falls in, into Rob's arms. And you do you should remember that, like, she's been in a relationship for eight years She's definitely kind of um, on the re- sort of on the rebound, you know what I mean? So it's fair, yeah. like, you shouldn't judge her for sort of making these weird choices that don't go with her sort of feminist bent. That's true. You know what I mean? But right. at the same time, it's one after another. I mean... One after another, the, bad choices, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, or just lack of 
lack of taking action. She seems like she's on automatic pilot. My sense was that it wasn't her conscious, rational mind making choices to stay in the village, to sleep with Rob, to, you know, that somehow there was a deeper thing pulling her. She was being Um, controlled. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe there was not, I don't think there's much that's supernatural about this, but perhaps there was some type of control that Fisher was exerting over her, just like he does over the rest of the village that led her to kind of allow her to be taken over and by the, the, the village. Maybe, or the, it's, maybe it's the marble. Maybe. It's the marble. Yeah, no, it's seriously. I mean, that might be controlling her. Yeah. yeah. Some way. Um, and we see Rob is outside and he's not allowed to come in. And then she's trying to start her car and, she, and the car doesn't start. Yeah, the car is sabotaged, essentially. And again, in full in full view or in full discussion, they talk about how it might have been sabotaged in front of her. Yeah. Oh, like and, then, and, and then you get, the you get your Wicker Man thing again, where they they finally kind of snap to, and they're like, I just got to get out of here. And no, the car's... Yep. I mean, but that's a classic. It's a classic horror trope. That's a classic thing. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's a, like a uh, village conspiracy. The right. car doesn't start. The uh, bus passes her by without stopping. The, you know, she, she refers to all the things that have happened at this point. She basically rattles them off. So the car, the bus, the phone was cut off. The live birds down my chimney and then Rob hanging around conveniently when that happens. Yeah. You know, she's like, I'm being kept for something. I've been kept alone for something. And, um, and then she's, she's voicing this to Mrs. Vigo, who to some extent, perhaps she still feels like she can trust, which is strange. But as soon as Mrs. Vigo says, well, you should ask Rob in. What did she say? You should you should have asked Robin or if you're lonely, you can ask Robin. Yeah, Yeah, that's what it is. If you're lonely, you can ask Robin. So, again, more manipulation. And at this point, she fires Mrs. Vigo. Right. Uh, Right. Uh, I should should mention she also calls Jake, hoping that he'll give her a ride. And and the phone is all messed up. And then, you know, he's kind of like for one minute, he's like, well, maybe I should go pick her up. And then Madge is like, nah, (laughs) Nah, don't bother. She's. Which Thanks, is, Matt. Yeah, they're just not great friends. No, that's terrible. That, that's part of the theme of this. Is you know these. She's been a band. I mean, if you're looking yeah. for a theme, which is maybe even similar to Rosemary's Baby, you see the the pregnant woman, the abandonment of the single woman um, by the entire society of the you know where she's just on her own to handle the pregnancy, to handle everything. Nobody yeah. she has no support with anybody. No family who's helping her out. Yeah, um, and even Rob's attempt. You know, he's not interested in the day to day raising of the child. Right. He just wants to basically know that he's got a child and she's he's it out for him. Well, I'm the one who has to raise him. Um, Yeah. So she fires Mrs. Vigo. Yeah. So she's basically uh, I wrote in my notes that she's freaking out at this point. The radio. um, What's the oh, the radio has an opera is playing on the radio. There's the noise of mice in the house. The phone goes dead, as you noted. Uh, we do get a cool zoom shot on a tree outside. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. The wind and it's the wind blowing on the trees again. Um, the operator. Yeah. The operator won't help her on the on the phone. And actually, then she starts listening to like an Easter service on the yeah. on right. on the I, th- I think it's the television, but you don't see the television. Oh, OK. I thought it was the radio. Uh, yeah. And then Rob shows up. Right. Right. And, and, and she basically turns on him at this point. Right. right. Because he shows up and like, she comes. He comes in and he locks the door behind him, and so that's when she's being suspicious. Yeah, and I think 
I think it's clear, you know, now in, in sort of after seeing the end of the movie that Rob does seem to know that something's going on because she says, you're really nervous. Why are you so restless? Why are you so nervous? So yeah. he might know a little bit more than he lets on. We don't know exactly what he knows because he, he tries to say yeah. that he doesn't know anything. He says, I've got nothing to do with it. So, yeah. but if there's an it there, what is it? Right. What is it? What is it that you don't right. have anything? Why is, to do with? why is he so nervous? Why did he lock the door? What is he? So he, so that makes me feel like he does know something's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But not clearly not what really happens. I mean, this is uh, at this point as the viewer, I think we're all expecting that she's being prepared for some kind of sacrifice that she right. or her baby, you know, maybe it'll go the Rosemary's baby route where it's her baby they really want and they're going to you know, tear it from her womb or something, or they're going to sacrifice both of them because we've got those shots of the dead animals earlier. But this is where it takes a real ironic twist. Yeah. Um, I should mention that he mentions that he's going to, he is going to go to Canada in a couple of weeks. Fisher gave him money, lent him money so that he could go. Then they, they talk about, oh, that night. Remember that night with you and me? Was Fisher watching us that night? Um, right. Cause she's getting really suspicious. And Rob said, oh, yeah. well, I, I do know that Fisher hit me on the head. Because <laughs> he was he was poaching apparently so so yeah. here you know I don't think he's lying about this he he he's been duped himself to some degree at least I, yeah. you know, we don't know exactly but she sees him as part of the conspiracy she actually says at one point robbed by Rob in yeah, every way I was robbed in every way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and but then, then she's maybe catching on a little too because then she says the bull was brought to the cow which you know acknowledges that. He may have been a passive character in the, the grand scheme. Yeah. Um, so we hear voices outside the cottage. That's very oh, spooky that's right. as well. They're yeah. mumbling and she hears it and she's that makes her even more paranoid. And she starts to jump to conclusions. Is this devil worship? Uh, I've heard stories of this kind of thing. These these, these rituals, devil worship rituals. Desecrated churches. She mentions desecrated yeah. churches. And she pulls the knife out and he says, you're off your chum, which I, re I really like that phrase. I first heard that from Monty Python. Huh. Yeah, I think, I think that's where I've heard it, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she aims the knife at his crotch. And he's at this point, he gets really scared, both of her and what's going on. He, and he shouts, I'm not one of them, which, again, acknowledges that he knows something's happening and they're involved with something. And she yeah, she she takes some control here, which, you know, by she she says, you know, something about that she may not be able to kill him, but she knows how to hurt him. And she's holding it towards his crotch. Right, yes, and she calls him, you know, the prized bull that she, you know that she could do something to him. Um, right, and she's like, "Well, I'll, I'll keep you here till Easter Sunday, then, since that's what they want is something to happen on Sunday. I'll just keep you here." The same day, it is Easter Sunday, right? Right, right. So yeah. I'll keep you here till morning, basically, and then that's when Pete. And this, this is brilliant. This is just brilliant having some something come down the chimney at this point. After all that we've heard about birds coming down chimneys and. You know, you still don't quite expect it, even though you've been told about it, just like Nora's been told about all these things and yet took her forever to catch on. And, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it's really um, spooky. And it, I think at that moment, it's it's Peter who comes down the chimney with his axe because his thing his is axe. the axe. That's why he's been chopping wood all his life. Is that that's right. his job. Yeah, right, right, right. And do we hear shouts as well? Or is that her that screams? Well, then you, Fisher is in the house, and he says, yeah. uh, "They somehow he unlocked the door or something." And then that's when he says, "Come on!" And then they 
go with Rob and Rob screams. Yeah, Rob starts yeah, screaming. That's what it is. And it yeah. echoes his, his scream earlier. That's what it is. Yeah, it reminded me of the shouts. Oh, yeah. And she she passes she, out. She faints. She faints. Exactly. And we, we leave that scene at that moment. Yep. Oh, uh, and, she, she faints when Peter comes down the chimney, I think. I think, yeah. She doesn't she really him, know yeah. what happened to Rob. So she didn't but really she, know but she's Yeah, that's right. She she doesn't see them take Rob's. And, and that I just wanted to note because with the soundtrack like this, without any music on it, those kinds of moments are even more jarring and impactful, I that's think. That's true, yeah. Yeah, it was like super loud, super loud screaming. Yeah, it was a horrified scream. And, and it's, you know, Brit- British TV could never show us what is happening, but he's being slaughtered. And as we learn later, he's actually being torn or, or cut with an axe limb from limb, basically. And that's, you know, we will talk about it when Mr. Fisher gives his big speech. But this is this culmination of the ritual, the killing of the king or the surrogate for the king and uh, the spilling of the blood to ensure the harvest. Right. Which is also like what happens in Wicker Man. And also kind of reminds me of the fact that Sergeant Howie basically gives an makes an implied threat to Lord Summer Isle that if the harvest doesn't come through, that he will be the king next year that they sacrifice. Yeah. So instead of a surrogate, they're going to actually go and kill the king himself. So so then let's pick up where Nora wakes up, right? Yeah, she wakes up in a chair and hears noises. Right, and then she's confused, and she's basically confronts or talks to Mrs. Vigo, right? Who's using the dish disposal for something, and this, I think, is for something nefarious is the indication here. She's cleaning up, probably, really. And so, yeah, what is Mrs. Vigo putting in that disposal? I don't know. But she does kind of try to put off. Strangely, she, she she's not really, like, open right away, right? She's um, She just basically says it's something about a game, right? At first. Oh, is that right? I didn't I didn't write that. I, that yeah. Um... I didn't write it either, so I could be wrong. But I think she says, like, it's something about a game. But then... You know, Nora's not having it. And that's where basically the game is up. And she basically, um, you know, says that uh, so basically admits to what happens, what happened to Rob. And she says, you know, what. So Nora kind of suggests that she thought she would be sacrificed or says something to indicate that. Yeah. And Mrs. Vigo says, what good would a woman's blood be for the land? We bear, my dear. We give birth. That in our work takes a man for the other. And so that's that this is the big twister of this thing is, you know, all throughout this play, we're thinking that it's going to be Nora and she ends up thinking that as well. And and it ends up not not the case. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of sexist why it's not the case. It's like, well, your role is to bear children. It's only the men who can be killed. (laughs) Like, okay, you know, if I were Nora, I'd be like, I'll take that deal. Yeah. Although probably horrific to have to give birth to like the next king as well. I mean, not to say she's got it good. But anyway, so this whole thing about the cycle of death and rebirth is made clear by Mrs. Vigo. And then Mr. Fisher enters, right? And she says, where's Rob? Right, where's Rob? And and he basically lays it all out for her. And this is the big monologue. So, oh, yeah, and also Mrs. Mrs. Vigo also says a nice comment that, you know, uh, because it's Easter Sunday, it's uh, oh yeah. She probably she basically they pretend that Rob has gone uh, to Canada, right? Right. They they try to, but pretty quickly abandon that when it's obvious. Yeah, and, and she says it's Easter Sunday. It's most most appropriate time to start a new life, and yeah, they abandon it almost immediately. 
I wrote sort of a list of things of all the different things that she was talking about because he kind of just kind of listed things. He was yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. the goddess of fertility couples with the young king. And he's so, he's stroking yeah. a horseshoe while he's saying this. Yes. Oh, I didn't notice that. He also says the goddess of fertility is like Miss Miss Palmer, Miss Nora, and, you know, basically not a virgin, uh, right? Right. So Nora is what? Nora is like the Aphrodite figure, the goddess of fertility yeah, figure? Yeah, and, and maybe it is an, a, a difference from the Christian thing. Like maybe the idea is that to these supporters of an old way they uh their goddess isn't a re- isn't a virgin but is actually like the the worldly woman sure right you know? yeah and i mean i think most religions prior to christianity did not did not like sanctify the idea of virginity at all right. or consider that holy it was more about childbirth and, or, and childbearing or if you think of those ancient models that were kind of just a sexy god goddess you know what i mean like exactly all the greek goddesses definitely are sexualized in their in the imagery and yeah i mean i think you know aphrodite obviously is clearly the case but it's not just greek right so this is where um mr fisher talks about the ritual of the sacrifice and he basically says the young king would be sacrificed or killed nora interjects killed and fisher says yeah he would pass away and he says assisted to it which i love that uh-huh. it's so british too you know it's like yeah. Just kind of talking around it a little bit, but not saying that they killed him. <laughs> um, and from his blood, the crops would spring. And this is where Nora says a Greek legend, Mr. Fisher. And Fisher basically, this is where he brings in James, Sir James Fraser's The Golden Bow into it. And he says, and Egyptian, Mexican, many places. And he tells her that he, she's got to read The Golden Bow. Yeah, and which, that and that to me is when we're looking at a real connection between probably a lot of these things we're going to look at in the from the 60s and 70s my guess is a lot of people just like a lot of people were reading like tolkien back then like a yes. lot of people were reading the golden bow and i think it influenced yeah. a lot of things i even have a a board game um from the 70s and i read the rule book and he says a lot of the stuff you'll see in this is from james frazier's the golden bow you know huh. it's it's what hippies were kind of getting into and reading yeah like the tibetan like the tibetan book of the dead yeah, or right yeah right. Yeah, and I think any reasons why you think Golden, the Golden Bow was suddenly—I mean, this is a book that was published in 1890 originally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's what we talk about with the re- revival of interest in old religions and. Well, and also I think because he's also kind of demotes Christianity a little bit to just one of many different myths, right? I mean, it's I, I, it was controversial when it when it came out in eight, in the 1890s because. You know, it was a study of comparative religion. I mean, I think it might have been the first study of comparative religion. And basically, Christianity was just considered to be another of the world's great myths, right, not the right. one true religion. Yep. So I did go back and I, I read some passages from it. And I mean, it's 12 volumes. I, I think it expanded to 12 volumes. So I'm probably not going to read the whole thing. But I just looked online and I picked out some things. And one of the um, I didn't know any of this history of it. I, I mean, basically, he was inspired to write this because of some of the similar tales he kept hearing over and over again. And he talked about the priests of Nemi of Italy, the prehistoric kings of the sacred oak grove, mm-hmm. and how there was always a protector of the oak tree who had, had you read any of this or heard any of this mythology? You know, I'll tell you the weirdest story, which was I went to a a cafe and I think I went there to work on my book or something. And I was yeah. just like, oh, I think I'll just read. I looked at the books on the sh- on the shelves and the Golden Bow was sitting there. So I pulled it wow. up and, and I started reading and I read it almost exactly because I was kind of browsing for Druid stuff and I read almost yeah. exactly what you just said. So, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great story, but it, so the story is there's a protector of the sacred oak grove, and he's basically stuck there always, you know. And this is also very similar to the the Fisher King thing too, which is another kind of story. Uh, anyway, he was a priest, and he is like waiting to be murdered essentially. So there's another person who comes and it becomes the priest by murdering him, and it's a ritualistic slaying. Huh. And yeah, so there's just a succession of priests protecting this grove, and so like he was inspired. He he just noted noticed that there were similarities between this story of of this kind of cycle of slaying and killing uh, in in a grove and stories of other religions, and then you know that led him to discover more magical beliefs around the world that all had to do with the king of the woods as a kind of incarnation of a solar god a solar deity who would be mar- married through death to the goddess of the earth. So the solar god would be killed. Wow. Uh, and the blo- Yeah, and the blood would fertilize the soil and the harvest. And basically, it's the harvest that slays him. And then the spring revives him over and over again. A fertility oh God, fight. It's totally oh. straight. I mean, it's funny that not only did he take it from the Golden Bough, but he says, it's all in the Golden Bough. <laughs> Yeah, he. I mean, it's so it's so direct. Yeah. I mean, basically, he's telling every every viewer to go read it because, yeah. like, if you want to find the origin of all these stories, it's right there on on that shelf in the coffee shop. Yeah. And and I think you know the thing that was controversial is he he brought Christianity into it too because Jesus apparently is another incarnation of this solar deity uh-huh. who gets sacrificed and is revived on Easter. So yeah, it's it's a spiritual cycle over and over again, dying at harvest, being reborn in spring, and a sacrifice of a sacred king. And it's both there in The Wicker Man, and it's there in Robin Redbreast, and according to Sir James Fraser, it's there in almost every single of the world's religions. And you know here, and it's in Robin Hood too. So you were about to talk about Robin Hood. Well, another. I was, was going to mention Balder from uh, Norse mythology, who's like the most beautiful. <laughs> Uh, god of them all and and so they make it so that he can't be harmed by anything but then uh loki makes a mistletoe arrow and tricks a blind god into shooting it at him and 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 everyone just weeps for him because there's the mistletoe again and there's a mistletoe yeah Um, right which is also in sir james frazier apparently there's a lot about that as well well i guess the other thing i will say is that just like uh lord summer isle you know i think Fisher as a character, not, not not just Bowen as the author, but Fisher as the character is actually cherry picking from the Golden Bough, right. just like Lord Summer Isle is, as a kind of means of social control, maybe. I mean, I think the difference here is that Lord Summer Isle is, you know, very much manipulating the villagers, although I think you made the case that he believes he believes it himself, too. Yeah, uh, he may but, have been raised in it, but so yeah, exactly. we, we exactly. are getting towards the end, and that is when we have to decide... Is Fisher just a man, or is he more than that, right? Well, that's kind of where I was going with it. I mean, I, I think the question here is, is he, you know, a, some self-appointed priest who's kind of using these old ways to manipulate the villagers and to have power and control? That seems not likely to me. It seems to me that he is truly some kind of pre- priest figure, whether it, there's actually something supernatural going on or not, that he really is some kind of holy figure for this village or at least the few villagers we get to meet and that he really believes in this stuff and that this really he really feels this is the more, the good the, for the good of the village that he's doing this right so let's just uh wrap up though because there's only a little bit more here right and then we'll get to that last shot which of course is the best probably the best shot in the movie in the show maybe. Yeah. yeah 
Definitely. Um, well, he, so he talks about Robin Hood, Robin of the Dale, Robin Redbreast, and he says that he, she should put the little one in an orphanage, right? Yeah, and by the way, with Robin Hood, I looked back at the Robin Hood story. We can talk about this when we talk about the name of the play, but there is a version of the Robin Hood story where his, he is killed and his blood is, fertilizes the land oh or my something. Oh, God, really? Wow. Yeah, totally. I mean, I wrote, I, I have to find my source for that, but in one of the Robin Hood myths, he bleeds to death. Um, which is kind of reflecting of that ritual murder of the king of the wood. And um, when we talk about the name, there's also the the ballad, uh, The Babes in the Wood. Uh, have you heard that old English ballad? Yes, yeah. And in some versions of that, Robin Hood plays a role in that ballad. And I only mention that because Robin Robin Redbreast, has a, the birds also are in that ballad. There's an attempted killing of the children and they escape into the woods, right? They escape into the woods and in one version of it, the robin redbreast comes and drops leaves on them as a blanket to protect them. And Robin Hood comes in at the end and saves the day. While in another version, they actually, the children die in the woods and the robin, either robin redbreast, the birds come and put a burial shroud on the children. So we'll, we'll come back to that because I do want to talk about the name robin redbreast and all that stuff. Yeah, so I mean, we're pretty much right at the end where she's leaving uh, right. And they, they threaten her to not tell anyone. Right. Because they say nobody will believe you. Right. Right. No one's going to believe you. Right. Do they also threaten her about. Well, no, because she can't. It's too late for an abortion. Right. At this point, she's definitely planning on having the child and um, maybe trying to escape the clutches of the village. But there's something menacing. Right. Before we get to that final shot. Uh, just. Yeah. They, they mentioned about the orphanage and that she shouldn't bother to tell anybody. And. He he tries to be mostly pretty uh, calm and collective, you know, like you kind of surprised that he lets her go. You know what I mean? Yeah, that there was something menacing about how passive they are, though. It's like, basically, we're going to come get you at some point and we're going to get your child. No, it must be that they know she's going to take him since that she's going to take it to a, a like an adoption agency because she's going to yeah. be a single woman and has no friends or family or anything, you know, I. I, you know, but I but I felt like maybe she wouldn't. I felt yeah. like maybe she would try to hide the child, like protect the child. I mean, we we haven't said it here, though, that, you know, essentially they want that child to be the next Robin. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's that's the, the cycle again, the regenerative cycle. It's the cycle of death and rebirth and the new king, which will be pampered and prepared for the next sacrifice. And now Nora knows it. Now she knows the deal. And yeah, I mean, I think she as she's backing away and before we get to that final shot, I think she's she wants to escape. And I think I, I would assume because of her regrets about not having a child of her own that she would want to raise the child. I guess that was my own thought about it. Right. I mean, and, and maybe since she has proven herself to be such a, a strong character, maybe she would not do what they would expect her to do. So. Yeah, but I don't think she's getting away. I mean, it's just, and it is like Rosemary's Baby's ending in this case, too. <laughs> well, there's something inevitable about the, the cycle that I think they're going to get that child. So she looks back, and they're all dressed in sort of ancient garb of some right. sort. All four of them. Fisher, Dr. Feelgood, sorry, Dr. Mr. Mr. Well-Beloved, Mrs. Vigo, and... Gummy Peter. Yep. They're wearing strange costumes. And most prominently, Fisher has giant antlers like Hearn the Hunter. 
And I yes. think some and people would interpret that to mean, oh, look, they're actually ancient gods. But right. I just interpreted it to mean that they That they raided the costume closet at the BBC <laughs> and found what they could. <laughs> <laughs> Low budget, you know. Yeah. It, I guess just that, like, maybe it didn't even happen. Maybe she just kind of saw them and said and thought, wow, imagine them looking like ancient people. Maybe it doesn't matter if it's real or oh, imagined. This is Vigo is dressed kind of like a witch, right? Yeah, I guess so. She's wearing tattered black car like clothing. It seemed very witchy to me, and I don't know. I don't remember exactly what the other two are dressed like, but something ancient looking. And yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know that it had to be uh, a um like a point to point representation of something exact. The other thing I read online is that Mrs. Vigo might be dressed like Hecate, the um, okay. The Greek goddess. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, again, these are people's interpretations, but why not? I mean, John Bowen was obviously fascinated by myth, and Hecate was a goddess of of magic and witchcraft and sorcery and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, that would certainly fit. Or, or it could just be some kind of weird image of ancient, you know, ancient figures incarnated in these modern figures in the village. Either way you look at it, whether you see it as a representation of some real mythological figures or just kind of wearing, you know, ancient tattered clothing, it's still a spooky image. How did it how did you respond to it? Yeah, I just I guess I just thought it meant like that they were ancient people. And I I, I guess I sort of took it literally that like maybe that those people would wear those clothes if they could just get away with wearing clothes like that. But I I never thought I never thought. Yeah, I never thought that they were like particularly like gods or magic or anything. I don't know. Well, the antlers are very specific, though. That's a very yeah. specific thing well, for him to be wearing. Okay, but think of the end of the Wicker Man, where like half the people well, are wearing true. antlers. Yeah, that's true. That's true for yeah. sure. I mean, and, and horns are. An, I mean, that's another kind of thing that characters might be wearing um, just to just to represent an animal spirit. Or or maybe yeah. it's like you know like. A, a uh, indigenous tribe might wear it as a headdress, like their their yeah. Um, yeah. their shaman might wear horns on their head or something like that. You know, right? So, so there's a, there's another myth that I wanted to mention too, which is the 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 um, the ancient Greek play, the Bacchae by yes. Euripides. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So it's not mentioned literally in this, but when Nora says a Greek legend, Mister Fisher, I think that's what she's referring to, and. I don't just think that. I actually read that yeah, online. <laughs> John Bowen has basically said the Bacchae was a big influence on his plays. And I'll just quote from him here. I found this online. So Bowen says, uh, My plays, like my novels, are dist- distinguished by a general preoccupation with myth, and mainly with one particular myth, the Bacchae, which in my reading represents the conflict between the Apollonian and the Dionysiac ways of living, more than the mere tearing of pieces of a sacred king. This theme, the fight in every human being and between beings themselves, rationality against instinct, is to be found somewhere in almost everything I've written. And so, you know, the the, Bac- the Bacchae, I've never read it, but, it, you know, it was huge back in the day, back in the Greek day. <laughs> and it's concerned with those opposing natures of opposing parts of human nature, the rational side, the civilized side, right. uh, which in the Bacchae is Pentheus, the king of Thebes, and the instinctive side represented by the ancient god Dionysus. And so if we look at it in terms of this play, um, before I talk about the ending, 
definitely you can see there's a tug and pull between rationality, Nora, who attempts, you know, to be rational about everything, and especially her London friends, you know, uh, and the kind of more instinctive spiritual villagers. Uh, so you can see you can see that here. Can, can uh, I just and, mention something a little strange, though? So, yeah. Um, when we were talking our first folk horror talk, you know, the one that went in episode zero. Yeah. I mentioned the Bakai. Oh. I mentioned, but I was, I didn't remember it was called the Bakai. I remembered I was talking about Pentheus. Yeah. I think, was, yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Go what ahead. Were the, um, what were you saying? What were you saying? I, I think it was in relationship to the Wicker Man where, um, he couldn't be tempted and the, the 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 villagers were trying to kind of get him in on the the bacchanal. Okay, like, yes. he was pent. He was Pentius. He was pe- the pent up one. That's what I thought. Well, they they also, I mean, in the Bacchae, they also they the the Maenads or Maenads, they they trap Pentheus, uh, who's taking. He's like basically hiding in a treetop. So that's kind of similar in yeah, a way. Yeah. And of course, the ending was a huge influence on this play because they, the Mayanads, uh, which are these kinds of um, Asian kind of female, semi-deranged, somewhat insane uh, figures, they basically tore Pentheus limb from limb and they right. tore off his head. And so, you know, that's obviously directly quoted in Robin Redbreast with the death of Rob. And, and he mentions it when he says, or Nora says, a Greek legend, Mr. Fisher. You know, it seems to be clearly referencing that that story. And it's, you know, James Bowen's quote. He's talking about how rationality versus instinct replays throughout all of his works. And it is interesting that I think I mentioned this earlier, too, that there was a play that he wrote prior to Robin Redbreast that he never finished. And it's basically an update updating of the, the Bacchae story. And it's in the 60s with a bunch of LSD crazed hippies, basically. That they are the main Yeah, I would like to see that. Yeah, totally. Although it never got made. And so it was also the Dionysus is the hippies who are all crazy on drugs. And the Apollonians uh, are the, um, you know, the typical upper upper crust British people, uh, stiff upper, upper lip British people. And in that telling of it, yes, it, the hippies tear apart the main character piece to piece. And so, yes, that's the influence of myth in John Bowen's works. Wow. I will say there is one little thing that we didn't fit, talk about at the end of the, uh, the the movie or the show, and that is that there is wind and bird song right at the end again. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about that, because that's one of the things I keep mentioning that I really, really like about this is that there's no sound. There's no soundtrack. Right. Uh, music. But it really works because that wind keeps coming up again and again throughout the play. We hear that kind of howling wind at various points. And yeah, totally. We hear that wind at the end. I think we hear it even before the end. Are you talking about when at the very end? Or I, I'm pretty sure it's right at the end. I think it might even be over the credits. I think it might actually be over the yes. credits. Yeah. And if you remember earlier, Jake mentions when, you know, the wind on the road that he basically, that's when he leads into his little monologue to scare Nora. Right. He talks the howling the howling wind on the road yeah the soundscapes basically um yeah it makes it just gives a wild feel to the to the whole thing wind birds and also the mice too right because we hear the mice scurrying and scratching as well as those other things so that you know those are the those are the main sounds that we hear we hear wind we hear 
the cawing and chirping of birds, and we hear mice scurrying, and all of which like serve to create both mood, but also reference the, the actual plot of the story where the mice are trapped in the walls and the birds, you know, we hear about them being trapped in the house. And so it's like, you know, these characters, Nora and Rob are also trapped in the house, but they're also trapped in this myth that keeps replaying over and over again. So yeah, I just thought that was cool how the sound kind of um, em- emphasized the theme. Yeah, for sure. To me, the wind, especially because of um, that guy's uh, discussion about it, but the wind sort of uh, symbolizes the ancient influences, you know, like the it's yeah. it's and it is special to this area. Kind of what he is saying that that there is a weird wind in this area. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I mean something weird about this whole area, uh, indeed. Is there more to say about the myth of Robin Redbreast? I looked it up on. Uh, on the internet a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I read a little bit. I, I don't know how much of it applies really. I mean, in the story, the only thing that's explicit is he says that the Robin red Robins live only a year uh, and that the female has many partners, but I, I looked it up. I mean, it's basically it is, it is a uh, bird with a lot of mythology behind it. And it's, you know, known as a garden bird known as to be very tame, but it's, it's also kind of a, um, it's the Robin seems connected to other figures in myth, like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, or um, who's also known as Robin Goodfellow, right? And and also the um, domestic spirit. That's also where the hobgoblin comes from, I guess. Apparently, um, well, I was, yeah, just, I was just yeah. going to say that. I mean, it's clearly associated with spring, right? Uh, sure, because that's yeah. when we, that's, that's at least when I think it's spring is when I see a robin. But it, it is important to mention that it's not the same. Um, the English robin redbreast is not the same as the American robin. That's two different. Which is words. a thrush, right? American robin's a thrush. There's also uh, superstitions about um, robins that that I heard about on the Hypnagoria podcast. And so, quick plug for that great podcast. So there's a episode, a Christmas episode about the robin. And he, he basically lists like all the superstitions about robins. He talks about if you break a robin's egg, then something valuable that you own will be broken. And in Ireland, if you kill a robin, you will never have good luck again. And um, he talks about other other misfortunes like animals will produce blood instead of milk. There's even an old English folk rhyme. The blood on the breast of the robin that's caught brings death to the snarer by whom it is caught. And yeah, basically, the lots of commonalities that the robin brings bad luck uh, in in England, especially if you harm it or harm its eggs. Uh, so you know, I've seen I see that the robin is thought to be an omen uh, or messenger of death. I don't know. I mean, there's so many myths associated with the robin that any or all of them could be applicable. That you know, the rob if it taps on your window three times, you will die within three nights. I don't know. That just seems to fit in a way yeah. with this story uh the warbling of the robin is considered beautiful in the summer but mournful during the winter uh, we hear we hear warbling on the soundtrack but we hear different kinds sometimes scary sounds as well including the bird that flies down the chimney uh, and then there's the connection to the ballad the children of the wood which became the ballad babes in the wood um and actually appears in mother goose's nursery rhymes which is interesting and it's um it's it's connected to the british panto tradition as well of old, you know, those pantomimes in England that are performed around Christmas time. And in some of those pantomimes, it was joined together with the story of Robin Hood. And that's where, that's where I mentioned that um, 
the children who are driven away by, I guess, a murderous uncle or a murderous figure. They, um, the Robins in that story are either the protectors of the child with putting leaves on them for as a blanket, or they are the barriers of the child children after they die of hunger by putting leaves as a shroud on the child. And this reminded me that there's an MR James story called lost hearts. I don't know if you've read that one. No, but basically that's like an updated version of the babes in the woods story. That's like the uncle who attempts to kill his two young nephews. And so there's definitely, I, I, I like to make any MR James connections I can make because I, I love him so much. So, so yeah, that that's mostly what I noted. And of course there's, there is the old nursery rhyme, right? The little Robin Redbreast one that I, I kind of remember. And the only thing I noted on here, I mean, mostly this, the lyrics don't really relate to this story at all. It's all about the Robin, you know, who the cat tries to get and, you know, keeps missing. Yeah, cool. No, um, what I was also thinking, well, so it's clearly that the, it's the robin's breast, which reminds people of blood, is why yeah. the bird is is has all these meanings to people. Yeah, well, and the breast of the robin, just going back to that, um, going back to that other rhyme, the, um, what is it? Cock robin? We haven't mentioned cock robin yet. Oh, yeah, cock robin, too. Exactly. That's um, another one. Robin. Yeah. The blood on the breast of the robin that's caught brings death to the snare by whom it is caught. Yeah, I mean, it, that that references the blood on the breast, which is it's actually more orange than red. But yeah, I I I, mean, I get it. Do you know why robins are connected to associated with Christmas so much? No, why but, there's so many Christmas cards with robins on them. Well, Wikipedia says it might be that postmen in Victorian Britain wore red jackets and were nicknamed robins. Ah, uh, okay. okay. And the robin featured on the Christmas card. Yep, kind of a mundane explanation, but yeah. but I get it. So if we can switch a little bit, um, it's interesting that... So there, did you watch the uh, extra features on the DVD? No, I did not. But uh, yeah, oh yeah, we haven't talked about that. But one thing I will say is the robin is was voted Britain's national bird as well. So it means oh, a lot to England. That's the national bird. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we but, should definitely... We haven't even talked about that. What the what the inspiration for the... Sh for the yeah, Play. yeah. So, so the um, the fascinating thing. Well, there's a couple, there's several fascinating things about the interview with John Bowen, and he talks about how all of these different things that happened in the story happened to him in real life. He, he bought a country, he bought a home in in the country. I guess that photo is the actual home that he bought. Um, oh apparently. wow! Yeah, and he had a field mice problem, and he heard them in the walls, and he um, had a guy in his garden looking for sherds who surprised him, and he found. Get this. He found a half marble on his windowsill, like literally. And, and by the way, we didn't mention it earlier, but I have to make another M.R. James connection. So um, I read something about that half marble that reminded me of the M.R. James, the most famous M.R. James story, Casting the Runes. And in that story, it's the, the runic note that gets left on the victims, which signals them as like the chosen ones or the, the ones who are marked for death. And... That, I, that's really similar in my mind to how the half marble is used in Robin Redbreast, yeah. where I think it's somehow marking her, right? Right, right. And even when it's left in her suitcase, that's just like in Casting the Runes. The note, the note gets left in somebody's suitcase or in some, you know, it, it's always surreptitiously given to someone as, as, a, as a way of marking them for death. So anyway, that's a little sidebar. But Interesting, yeah. It's, it's M.R. James, have to mention it. So, yeah, all these things happened to him. He found the gameskeeper for the house uh, learning karate in his garden. <laughs> so that that part's just 
kind of somewhat interesting, but even more interesting is there was an actual murder which inspired this story. Have you did you read about this? Uh, yeah, uh, it was a murder in a village near Stratford. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lower Quinton, I guess. Um, a farmer named Charles Walton in 1945 who was gruesomely murdered with his own pitchfork. And there was all kinds of rumors that he was killed upon on Candlemas Day and that he was killed because he was practicing witchcraft or he was able to cast the evil eye on the locals of the village. Uh, and, um, you know, I also read, I, I guess, that Bowen, John Bowen mentions in the... Um, and the extras that the body was apparently dragged on the ground so that the blood could fertilize the land. So oh. really crazy. And apparently the guy who investigated the murder, they, they never found the murderer. And years later, he wrote in his memoirs that he believes it was associated with witchcraft and that it had something to do with that. So anyway, that's that's the kind of true life, true crime story that um, is behind this, uh, which I think just and I love all those details, all those you couldn't really make up those details, like a guy doing karate in the middle of the woods. I mean, you know, yeah. I, who would think of that? Right. So it just kind of makes sense that it actually happened to him. And on the on the extra on the interview, he also talks a lot about the Bacchae and, and the conflict between rationality and instinct. And so apparently, I mean, Bowen was really obsessed with this uh, kind of conflict. Yeah, because that, talked, that, yeah. That, co that conflict is central to like art um yeah. understanding of art and literature and right you know, the, the, right the instincts versus the the planned out and always in favor the artist is always in favor of the dionysian of the instinctual right yeah. of the yeah yeah and then bowen is, the, is that way for sure i also like one of the quotes on the interview he talks about um that the whole of life, the complex, he says, basically, sometimes the ordinary is horrifying, too. And, you know, that's this whole film. It's mundane. There's all this mundane stuff that happens, but it's really spooky and scary. Well, that's scary, but it, it's eerie, spooky, and in the end, horrifying. Yeah. Do you have any anything more to say? That's actually a really good ending right there. But... So maybe it's good to sum up a little bit about what I really liked about it, because I think we've talked a lot about it without maybe saying that I really, really loved this. I thought it was awesome. Um, and I thought it worked really well as both a teleplay and as a film. And what I mean, I, I really some of the things I liked. So I made a list of all the things that I liked about it. So maybe I'll just read those. Um, I did like how it made all that mundane stuff really horrifying and spooky in really subtle ways. And it was kind of just built up layer upon layer. I liked how um, basically everything is there for Nora to see what's going on. But it, it made it just somehow more frightening that she just can't put it all together or she's somehow stuck in a in a in a role like she's destined to play. I thought that was great. Um, I thought it really worked well having Nora as a strong, fairly liberated feminist type character, uh, because, you know, that if it was, you know, somebody a 1950s type housewife character it just wouldn't have that kind of tragedy to it that you know she's basically you know becomes the pawn of these patriarchal figures um well mrs vigo but mainly mr fisher and uh, i thought that really worked well it also played into the whole idea of sexual liberation and how nora really is finding something missing in her post 60s post-hippie liberated lifestyle, post-first-wave feminist lifestyle. She's 
I think she does. I think she, like many people after the 60s, experienced a bit of a hangover and wanted to, you know, harken back a little bit to some some times that were maybe more comforting or maybe just that whole thing about wanting to have a child and, you know, seeing that relationship of eight years kind of end. Um, I thought, I thought, I mean, I really loved her character. I thought the actress who played her, Anna Cropper was awesome. I'm just can't believe I haven't really seen her in. She never went on to like bigger things. I think she really did kind of present that conflicting attitude towards the seventies bohemian lifestyle of her friends in London. I, I thought that was done really well. And yeah, I mentioned the stylistic elements that I liked. One of the stylistic elements that I really appreciated was how it cross cuts between Nora in the country and her friends in the city by using the, her voiceover as she narrates her letters to them. I know we talked about that earlier, the, but there, I, there me, actually would have been nice to see the color. I feel like that would have yeah. come into play. You'd see there, you'd get the idea of how, who, how hip these, these guys were in London, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, especially when you think about like seventies swinging London, yeah, right? Or be 60s. Real funky. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you said that before, I was like thinking more that, you know, I think I missed the color in general in this. I, I think you're right. I think it would have, it would have just been more powerful in color. It would have felt less like a kind of cheesy teleplay and more like cinematic yeah. uh, because it does, it's very cinematic. I, I mean, the, the, so the intercutting between the country and the city with that voiceover really, for me, it just highlights how isolated Nora is physically in the cottage where she's surrounded by hostile strangers and also like how she's isolated emotionally from her friends in London who are reading her letter and are also kind of like hostile strangers to her. You know, they're they're not they don't really have her interests at heart. Yeah. And I guess the other thing, I'll, the final thing I'll mention is that I really liked that it was kind of a twist in this, that there was basically they were diverting. John Bowen diverted you the whole way through where you think just like Nora, it's going to be Rob who's sacrificed. And, you know, those of us who just saw The Wicker Man recently, you know, we have that film in our backs of our minds, too. You know, in The the Wicker Man, of course, there was also a lot of diversions about Rowan's disappearance. But here it's about who will actually get sacrificed. I thought that was done really well. Till April is dead, change not a threat. Till May is out If you change in June It'll be too soon Hasta mayo No te quites el sayo Till April is dead Change the thread You're the fool for thinking on Yeah, change the cloud Till May is out Talk babes in May If you change in June It'll be too soon
And that's it. Thanks for listening to the Full Horror Podcast. As always, for screen captures, interesting links, and so forth, go to my blog, boojumpudding.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook slash Candle Ends Media, all one word. Follow Candle hyphen ends on Twitter. Follow Mike on Twitter at HappyWanderer13 or Candle Ends Media on Instagram. You can email me at neil at candleends.com. Send me your letters or audio and we can include it on the show. See you next time and may your chimneys be free of birds or axe-wielding murderers with no teeth. Mm-hmm.